Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Congo. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee camp. I was camp. born in Mumbai. India. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Hear, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Today we hear the voice of Joe Kai, who found his way toward individuality and innovation through classical music. Alison Merkel has Joe's story. told my parents I'm, I'm not going to apply to grad school. I'm going to try to do music full time. And I remember my, my mom just looking at me in the way that only moms can, just this cold stare of doom. And the first thing she said was, then why did you go to Yale? Joe Kai, born in Seoul, South Korea in 1987, entered the United States as a dependent on his father's F1 student visa. In the U.S., his parents raised him with high expectations for his future. You know, enter a profession that would give me what my parents did not have, which is security, stability, success, and recognition. So lawyer um, would be great. Be in the U.N. and be like the ambassador to America. And so I actually applied to school saying that I would be a journalism major. Music certainly was not at all a career musician was certainly not in the cards at all. Joe's family left Korea during a period of civil unrest so that his father could pursue a career in academia. He was a history teacher, was being asked to sign non-union clauses. The government wanted the history to be taught a certain way, and my dad did not want to do that, and so he decided to go back to school. There were also a lot of protests happening and demonstrations because these so-called democratically elected presidents were also very much backed by the American government. My dad's advisor told him, listen, everyone and their mom has a PhD here. How are you going to get a job in academia in an extremely competitive market? If you go to the United States and get your your PhD from a, an American institution, that's really going to give you a leg up. When Joe was six years old, his family moved to Boston, Massachusetts, in order for his father to study for the TOEFL exam and apply to American PhD programs. When Joe boarded the flight to the United States, he knew only two English words. Yeah, I mean, I knew hello and thank you. You know, the first day of school, I remember walking back crying because I was a talkative kid. I was a very social child, um, and I remember just feeling stupid. I couldn't say anything to any of my peers to prove that I was not some dumb mute. And this part I don't remember, but my mom said that the very next day I wrote out a, a three-digit multiplication problem on, on a piece of paper and then took it to class to give to my teacher to prove to her that I was not some idiot. Two years later, Joe's dad was admitted to the University of Washington, and they packed their bags for Seattle. By that time, I think a lot of our savings if not all of our savings, had basically been burned through. 
when I began to realize how poor we were, you know, when we first moved to Seattle, we lived in the basement of a church member for a few months while we tried to find an apartment. We went to McDonald's every day because they were having a 99 cent Big Mac deal and it was the cheapest food that we could buy. And so that was the time that I really began to realize, oh, wow, I'm not like other kids. Once we finally did move into an apartment in the suburbs of Seattle, we had zero furniture. We had a pot, we had a mattress, and you know the entire rest of the apartment was was empty. And I remember distinctly my parents spreading out newspaper on the kitchen floor and us kind of eating a large pot of instant ramen as our meal. In America, the international students are not allowed to work and their dependents are also not allowed to work. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, my parents didn't find odd jobs here and there. You know, I remember my dad painting houses. I remember my dad um, delivering laundry for a while. You know, I remember my mom throughout my middle school time worked at a teriyaki restaurant, kind of washing dishes. So I think they, they both scrabbled and hustled and did as much as they could to help us survive in this country. You know, in some of those difficult times, music was really the healing tool for our family. So whether it was my dad, after a tough day, taking out his guitar and playing lamenting Korean folk tunes from his past, or whether it was my mom putting on K-pop before K-pop was cool on a little CD that her sister had sent her from Korea and just blasting it while, you know, she and me and my sister would all dance together in, in the house while my dad was working in the library. In third grade, Joe picked up an instrument for the first time. Every student got a recorder and learned how to play recorder, and I remember just loving it. At that time in the Seattle Public School System, you could choose an instrument, and they would give you instruction once a week on that instrument. I remember really wanting to play saxophone, but I think my parents' Jedi mind tricked me. You know, there was all of a sudden there were a bunch of violin. CDs in the house, and then I chose to play violin, chose, quote-unquote, chose. Why I think many immigrant parents gravitate towards classical music is because there's a lot of structure, and you can chart your progress because there's a hierarchical seating system. And so if you want to know how your kid is doing, oh, look, you know, last year he was 10th chair, and this year he's 5th chair. Um, it's, it's easy to, to understand the growth and development of your child. You know, I think a large part of it is it's an aspirational music form. Uh, when you move to a country, you want to you want your kid to be ingrained in cultures and communities that will help them get ahead. Classical music is perceived to be you know at the kind of apex of musical hierarchy. There were also Korean Americans who, even at that time, had become renowned for playing that instrument. <laughs> at a world-class level. Sarah Chang is, is a good example of that. And so I think, yeah, that's probably one of the largest reasons why my parents gently nudged me in that direction. But there was one problem with classical music, something Joe had to confront early on in a violin shop in Seattle. Classical music is really expensive. 
when it comes to the cream of the crop, these were all kids that had extremely expensive teachers who all had violins that were ten to twenty to thirty thousand dollars. I started private lessons very late, which was in sixth grade. And uh, it was time my, my private teacher insisted that I get my own violin instead of renting a very cheap one out uh, on a monthly basis. I remember going to Bishop Berger Violin in Seattle and helping to translate for my dad, who is not a very good haggler, um, you know, trying to translate this haggling session between the owner of the shop and my dad. On the one hand, you have a kid who really wants a violin. And then on the other hand, you have a kid who perhaps had to grow up a little earlier than most children. And so is also thinking about, boy, you know, this violin is $750. So that is literally two months rent. And just a few months ago, we couldn't pay the full amount of rent and we had to take a loan out. So much of my musical life growing up was about not having. And I think in music, it really, it, it takes a lot of capital to make those dreams a reality. If something is really expensive and you grow up in, in relative poverty, then you tell yourself, well, I don't want to do that. The, the child part of me that really wanted something, I think in many ways was smashed down and quieted by this, by this adult part of me that knew that I would be making things very difficult for my family by wanting to pursue something so trivial as music. According to Joe's parents, the only way music would provide prestige and stability, prestige and stability that would be necessary for getting a green card, would be if he went to Juilliard and became the next Sarah Chang. To even consider the financial burden of pursuing music, he would have to be the best. And when Joe reached high school, he realized that he didn't want to be the best at classical music. He wanted to find his own voice. I started writing songs sophomore year of high school, and they were very emo, you know, indie rock type of tunes inspired by Death Cab for Cutie and Red Hot Chili Peppers, because that was what I was listening to at the time. I, I loved writing and it was really kind of a way for me to understand how I felt and to process my emotions and then also to perform. Before that, you know, I never thought that that could be me because of the fact that the only instances of, of Asians making music in America was in the classical music realm. I'm constantly thinking in my head, how am I presenting myself in a way and how does that relate to the differing expectations that mainstream America has on what it means to be Asian. So I, th I think when I started writing songs sophomore year, it was in some ways me kind of taking control of what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. But Joe could only take over so much control. Joe had to stick to the plan. He would get into a prestigious college and pursue a prestigious career. At the time, Joe shared his parents' desire to achieve stability, security, and high recognition. So he applied to college as a journalism major. I remember opening up the little internet message and a little bulldog popping up and some dumb Yale song singing and saying that I had gotten admitted. And I, I just burst into tears because I'd been working so hard to get into a really great college so that I can in many ways, save my family. I think the pressure that my mom especially put on me 
it wasn't just for me and my future, but it was to to make all those sacrifices that she made, all of the hours that she spent washing dishes in the teriyaki restaurant worth it. My sister heard me crying, came into my room, and then you know she found out and then she started crying. My parents you know, heard us crying upstairs. They race up and basically, you know, the four of us were just sitting in my bedroom, hugging and just weeping because at that time, this was our, this was our ticket. This was our golden ticket. Must have been the night before leaving. My parents sat me down at our dining room table, donated by a church member. The one thing I remember them doing is apologizing a lot and crying as well, and apologizing that they weren't able to provide me as much as they would have liked. And then I also remember reassuring them and telling them I had a great childhood and that I'm really thankful for all of their sacrifices and everything that they have provided me with. Joe moved himself into college in the fall of 2005, an international student with a full ride. I spent so much time doing music at Yale, acapella, writing music, starting to do violin looping, learning to improvise even better. And I think in many ways, that was the education that I did not receive a degree in. Joe started experimenting with electronic manipulation, i.e. looping, putting his own spin on classical music. Joe even connected with his future wife, Natasha, a third-generation Korean, through music. She saw me singing at a singing competition on campus. We started hanging out through a mutual friend, but in many ways, I think I was the pursued. So this was, you know, I think the end of my sophomore year that we started dating. I had said to her kind of like offhandedly, oh, I would love to play you some songs sometime. And I remember, you know, one of those days getting a text message being like, I think I'm ready for some songs. Despite all of the time he spent making music, Joe had to focus on subjects that could help him gain residency in the United States and lead him to a secure future. So he became an American Studies major. What classes I took and what future I envisioned for myself was based on the fact that after graduating, I needed to either get a job at an institution that would sponsor me for a work visa and a green card, or go immediately to grad school. I remember telling my dean of students of the residential college that when we sat down for kind of our meeting at the beginning of senior year, you know, where do you see yourself going? And there was definitely a part of me that wanted to sling my guitar over my back and just go to New York and, and try to be a musician. But it was so outside the realm of reality. And at the time, it seemed so selfish of me to do that. I didn't have the money for it. I didn't have the connections for it, and certainly I did not have the immigration status for it, which is why quickly on in senior year, I set my sights on being a, a high school teacher you know, at a private school that could sponsor me for, for a work visa. I got an English teaching fellowship at the Urban School of San Francisco. It was a wonderful time for me to kind of stretch my wings and, and feel American, you know, to feel very American. Here I was teaching high school English to the students of the upper class in, in San Francisco. I was writing a lot. I was creating a lot at home. So this was my first year in San Francisco. I did get my first gig. I had worked a little bit as an accompanist for dancers 
at Yale, contemporary dancers. And one of the professors had gotten a fellowship at Bershnikov Art Center in New York. And she hired me to be one of the musical collaborators for her performance. I got flown out and I remember sitting on stage performing and in that moment just being overcome with awe as well as the realization that, oh my God, I could get paid to make music. And that was one of the turning points for me as far as thinking of music as a money-making opportunity. After his year-long teaching fellowship in San Francisco, Joe landed a teaching position at the Overlake School in Seattle, where his partner Natasha was in medical school. In 2012, Natasha and Joe married, and Joe became a permanent resident of the United States. I was actually in the middle of applying to grad school and writing up a PhD proposal and talking to PhDs. That's when I began to realize this is not what I'm interested in doing. I loved learning about the musicians who were creating the music that were vehicles of social justice, but I did not enjoy writing 100-page papers about it. I did not want to spend the rest of my life, like my dad, sitting in a library and reading about these people and writing these kind of dense papers for a small select part of the world. I didn't want to study these culture creators. I wanted to be a culture creator. A pretty important phrase for me was this idea of permission. I always had to get permission from my parents to do a variety of things. And to do something like this, right, to throw away, quote unquote, to throw away my, my Yale education and all of my, my academic smarts to pursue independent music, I had wonderful people that I really respected and looked up to that encouraged me and gave me that sense of permission. My partner, Natasha, generously gave me that permission to really, for the first time in my life, do something monumental for myself. But I think it was a slow process of feeling secure and realizing that I did have that security in my partner, who was very supportive for that, that I could, that I was allowed to do this. Natasha started her residency at UC Davis, and I started to do music full-time. I started playing open mics, a lot of open mics. It was a grind. I mean, the first two years trying to be an independent musician, I would say, were some of the most depressing of my life. I think I was kind of full of it. Here I was, this like Yale-educated kid who was also kind of making music that I think was very different from most of the people at, at open mics. You know, I was doing violin looping and almost everyone there was a guitarist, singer, songwriter singing folk songs. So I felt many times very frustrated by the fact that people didn't seem to appreciate this thing that I'd worked so hard for. Even if you have something that you think is beautiful, it doesn't mean anything if you don't have relationships. I think it was really learning to befriend everyone else at the open mics, jumping onto their albums and their recordings, oftentimes for free, offering the sound of my violin for Johnny Cash covers or offering the sound of my violin for oh, this little EP that I'm working on. 
and creating those collaborative bridges and relationships that really helped me to see what my use was both as as a musician in the community but also then to to grow as as an independent musician as well as a small business owner in 2016 the relationships joe had been forging started to pay off in a major way a local promoter who had hired me a few times got a call from the Bernie Sanders campaign because he was holding his first California rally in Sacramento. And did he know any local musicians that he thought might be good to play some music at this rally? And Jerry Perry, uh, that's his name, he, he called me. So I remember being on stage, I think the estimate was 15,000 people all gathered at this soccer stadium. And so here I was, an immigrant, Right. And I still wasn't an American citizen, so I couldn't vote. But here I was playing, you know, We Shall Overcome, playing my original music and also playing the national anthem on stage in front of such a diverse group of people who all wanted to participate in the building and creation of of America. But I think that was one of the moments where I really felt, wow, like I can do this. I can do this. And I have a purpose. It's not just to make music so that I can look cool, but that music can do that thing that I studied, which is build community and develop identity and push forward ideas of, of social justice. And me being able to lead that as an immigrant, as the son of immigrants, was it was so, so, so powerful. Performing at the Bernie Sanders rally not only heightened Joe's confidence in his ability to pursue music, it was also a turning point for his parents. And I think the Bernie Sanders rally was really big for them because they kind of, I think they saw, they saw what could be. Early on, when basically my mom realized she couldn't persuade me out of it, you know, she said, okay, like, you have my blessing, but promise me. And this is, I guess, a literal translation, so it doesn't make that much sense. But she said, you know, promise me that if things do not turn out, that you will turn around, that you will turn around and head back. A couple of years later, in 2019, Joe was invited to perform a TED Talk in Seattle on the same stage that he had performed his first ever concert with his fourth grade recorder ensemble. It's also one of those moments of wonder and gratitude it was a beautiful stage, you know, the the Seattle Opera House, right, McCaw Hall, packed. And so then, yeah, here I was in, in McCaw Hall performing with, you know, state-of-the-art this and blah, blah, blah. And it was so beautiful because of the fact that it was in Seattle. You know, I'd done a couple of TEDx performances in Sacramento, but to be able to do that in the town that I really call home, you know, it's the place that I've lived the longest portion of my life. And I feel like so many of my roots are there. It, it was really a beautiful moment. lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife Natasha and their twin babies. His music has been featured on BBC World News and the NPR Politics podcast. 
Joe is in the process of writing a one-man show, which will incorporate the stories of his past. I think there is a lack of representation about the, the very real and nuanced stories of immigrants. It's not of complete suffering, nor, of course, is it of complete joy. It's a complex narrative. So for me, the reason why I tell these stories is to add into the culture and public knowledge and understanding these very real stories of, to me, what it means to be American. This is my American story. This is my immigrant story. If I can challenge audience members to think of what it means to be American in a different way, then it makes me feel like I have a purpose and that the reason why I'm on stage is not just for myself, it's that it is for, yeah, it's for a higher purpose and higher meaning. Many Roads to Hear is a production of The Immigrant Story in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. This episode was written and produced by Allison Merkel. Rick March edited the audio, assisted by Gordon Graham. All music used in this episode was provided by Joe Kai. Our executive producer is the undeterred Sankar Raman. Many Roads to Hear is expanding. We're looking for radio producers, especially those from immigrant communities and communities of color to join our team. Please email mrh at theimmigrantstory.org for more information. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.